Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, police didn't want the Emergencies Act, but you know who did? Justin Trudeau, plus the malignant alliance between big government and big tech and survivors of socialism. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. What day is it today? I have no idea now because we're getting into the uh, summer months. Uh, near, well, they're nearing anyway. Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. Hope you are all having a, a wonderful week. I know we're doing things on a little bit of a different schedule this week, but I am able to tell you why that is today. A bit of an exciting day or exciting week because this week on Friday... I am off to Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum annual meeting. Now, before you tune out, I I have not been invited. In fact, the World Economic Forum has gone through painstaking lengths to prevent independent journalists like me from going to cover what's happening at the upcoming meeting. And to be honest, if you know me, you know I'm a little bit stubborn, and and that has probably made me want to go more. So I'm going to just take a step back here and explain a little bit of why this is. So I get messages all the time, emails nonstop about the World Economic Forum, about the WEF. Every little while, a video from Klaus Schwab, the chairman and founder of the WEF, will circulate saying creepy things like how he's penetrated so much of the Canadian cabinet and politicians around the world. And then you get clips from people like Justin Trudeau explaining how it's all about the Great Reset or how the need to reset and all of these things. And and all All of the stuff that is coming out here tends to be dismissed as conspiracy theory. And the problem with this is that if you read the World Economic Forum's own language, they make it abundantly clear what it is they want, what it is they want to do, and less so how they want to get there, but to some extent they're transparent about that. So I think there are people that have very conspiratorial views of the World Economic Forum, but I think that for the most part, the grievances that you can raise about them are using their own words, the ideas that they put forward, and more importantly, all of the politicians who by their own admission are hitching themselves to these things. When I went to cover the World Economic Forum's meeting in January 2022, I didn't actually have to go anywhere because the meeting took place online. And what happened is some of the sessions were public, anyone could watch them, others were behind closed doors, including one with Health Minister Patty Haidu, where as a Canadian taxpayer, I actually couldn't see her talking about, I think the panel was cross-border mobility. That seems like a bit of a problem. Maybe she wasn't talking about anything of substance. Maybe she was. But you have politicians that go to this conference and all of a sudden are putting their thoughts and ideas and perhaps their government's thoughts and ideas behind closed doors. So for all that the World Economic Forum says, it's not a secretive organization. It is an organization that prides itself on being the place where discussions happen, the place where things happen. And when they're having it in the mountains of Switzerland, most people who are going to be affected by these decisions and these discussions don't actually have the ability to be there for it. So we decided at True North months ago that we were going to cover this. And because of COVID, it's taken a little bit of time for them to actually have another in-person meeting. And the next one they have is scheduled for next week. So I'm getting there a couple days early to get my bearings. And again, this is not about feeding into conspiracy. It's actually about shining a light on what it is the World Economic Forum actually wants to do. 
and how it will affect Canada, how it will affect the Western world. And I just want to, to this point, explain a little bit about what they're promising for this event, again, in their own words. They have a number of themes set out. You can see it on their website here. Climate and nature, fairer economies, tech and innovation, jobs and skills, better business, health and healthcare, global cooperation, society and equity. And again, all of these things, for the, for the most part, sound pretty innocuous. They sound pretty benign. You click on one of them like, oh, I don't know, society and equity here, and you see that all of the things they talk about, systemic oppression of people of color, a widening gender gap, social injustice, these are all the things that they're putting up as the backdrop. But here's the interesting thing. They promote these ideas along the lines of which of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals they think discussions about these ideas will fulfill. So a lot of these global institutions, they're not discrete entities that exist without a huge amount of overlap. So UN priorities form the backbone for the World Economic Forum, which is technically a private sector group, but it gets all of this fawning and adoration from governments, including from Canada. And so far, we don't know what the Canadian delegation, if anything, is going to be. And that's one of the reasons I want to be on the ground. Who's there from Canada? What are they talking about? And I mentioned a moment ago that the World Economic Forum doesn't want us there. Well, when they announced this date, I happened to be on my computer and immediately, like that second, I went and said, I got to book a hotel. And didn't I find that every hotel for a considerable radius had already been booked up before they even announced it? Because anytime they announced the forum, they, before they announced it, have all of the hotels under their control. So you can't actually stay there unless you go through them and you book through their accommodations platform, which you can't do if you're not a registered attendee. So I said, okay, great. Let's just start and look at Airbnb. So I looked at an Airbnb. And Airbnb has, in a lot of cases, this process where you have to request a room and then they have to approve your reservation. And I would request it, it would be turned down. I'd request it, it would be turned down. There were a couple of bookings that I actually got, secured bookings. And then after I booked them, they got canceled by the host. And one of them was very transparent with me because he said, listen, the World Economic Forum, I have a contract with them that whenever they say they want it, I have to give it over to them. And if I don't rent them my own home, they have very steep penalties that they'll heap on me. So I don't think the World Economic Forum was specifically saying, oh, we heard Andrew Lawton booked an Airbnb and we don't want him there. But I do think what the World Economic Forum does is they try to take over the whole town, which can accommodate far more people than they bring in, as I understand it. But they try to take over the whole town and the neighboring towns for the sole purpose of making sure that only those they want there are there. And they have a portal on which you can apply for accreditation as media. But only those who are given a password, only a select invited group, can even apply for accreditation. And I asked a number of times over the last few months for that password. I said, I, I don't even... I'm not even looking for a guarantee of accreditation. I want you to give me the chance to seek accreditation. I want you to let me ask you and not a single response. So this is, I think, very important. So people have asked me, because we sent out an email to our subscribers yesterday telling them that, hey, we're, we're going to cover this thing. And people said, well, if you're not accredited, why are you going? And, and that, that is a very fair question. As you know, if you've been following me for a while, you know I've covered things that I haven't been invited to in the past. And you can get crafty with it. And I'm not talking about doing anything illegal, but you start to find other ways to figure out what's happening. And in some cases, reporting on who's going in and coming out of a meeting is of value. In other cases, 
those uh, these things are, are not actually all that closed off. Once they get there, they're just trying to scare people away from, from doing exactly what I'm doing. And in other cases, it's talking to the people in these communities. What do they think about when this group comes to town? So I don't exactly know what the coverage is going to look like because this is going to be a very fluid situation. But the whole point is, is that there's a story here and a lot of people don't want to talk about it and we are unafraid to talk about it. So uh, that's going to be what's coming up next week. As I said, I'm going to be going up on Friday, but I'll be there by next week. And I, I don't know what, again, like I, I said, I don't know if I'll be able to do whole shows or if I'll do video reports or uh, written content. Again, you, you'll have to bear with us as we try to navigate through this, but uh, certainly, and maybe I'll get a one-on-one -on -one with Klaus Schwab. You never know. That would be that would be absolutely wonderful. So, uh, thanks to all of you who have supported that coverage, and I, I will say it is expensive. Like, I, and I, and again, I know it sounds like oh, you're sending Andrew Lawton to Europe. This is not a vacation. This is going to be very busy. It always is. If you want to chip in to support our coverage, please do. You can do that at donate.tnc.news. And, and we are trying to keep costs down. I'm going alone. I'm not going with a, a cameraman or anything like that. I, I'm going alone. Just me, my phone, my microphone, and uh, my <laughs> my tenacity. I don't know if you can quantify that, but we will uh, we will do our best. Uh, just shifting gears into the actual news of the day here, I want to talk about the Emergencies Act because the Emergencies Act is the gift that keeps on giving, not if you're a Canadian who likes freedom, but as far as uh, taxpayer interests are concerned, because this is the government's attempt to do an end run around civil liberties. And we were told, the government told us, that we need to invoke the Emergencies Act because those truckers have brought the country to its knees, they've brought the city of Ottawa to its knees, and police don't have enough resources to do it. And, and this never had what we call the ring of truth. It never had the ring of truth because obviously, 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 what was happening was the government was looking at this and saying, okay, we need to get out of this. We need to stop this because it's making us look really, really, really bad. The border blockades had already been cleared up without the use of the Emergencies Act, uh, but government said, no, 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 law enforcement needs us to give them extra resources. Well, then we have these admissions this week. First, from the RCMP. Commissioner Lucky, we've heard <coughs> multiple times from ministers and others that the Emergency Act and the tools provided were specifically requested by police leadership. As a law enforcement agency with primacy for national security, did you ask the government or representatives for the invocation of the Emergencies Act? No, there was never a question of requesting the Emergency Act. There was thought, a question. Sorry, that I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt, with. but uh, I'm sorry. So you never asked for it. Do you know of any other police leadership that asked specifically the government for for the invocation? No, we actually reached out to various police agencies when there was talk about some of the authorities within that they were proposing. And, of course, we were consulted because we were the ones who would be using those authorities. So we were consulted to see if they would be any of any use to police in these in the context of the Freedom Convoy. Okay, I mean, yeah, that's just the RCMP saying they didn't ask for the Emergencies Act. I mean, we know it was Ottawa Police. It was the Ottawa Police Service that was really in charge. So may maybe the Ottawa Police asked for the Emergencies Act. One final question. Did the Ottawa Police make a request to the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Measures Act, yes or no? So we were involved in conversations with our partners and with the political, um, the political ministries. Uh, we didn't make a direct request uh, for the Emergencies Act. Oh, no. Okay. 
So if the RCMP didn't, the Ottawa police didn't, maybe the OPP did, but that doesn't really make sense because they weren't in charge here. So maybe it's that no one asked for it. Maybe it's that no police asked for the Emergencies Act and Justin Trudeau just wanted to do it. The Trudeau government just wanted this power for themselves. It wasn't about capitulating to police. And by the way, even if police had asked for it, that doesn't mean it would have been a right to give it. But in this case, no one asked for it, it seems like. Maybe this is why Justin Trudeau's government doesn't want to access, uh, doesn't want to hand over its cabinet documents and its cabinet records to the independent inquiry. Because they'll see that perhaps this process emerged and emanated entirely from cabinet without law enforcement requesting it when law enforcement was always the government's shield. It was always the body that was government was using to say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're doing this for them. We're, we're doing it. We, we don't want to do this. It's a last resort. Well, if police didn't ask for it, maybe it wasn't actually a last resort. Now, I can't give you the definitive answer as to why the government wanted to do it. I, I think that, again, it was making them look bad. I also think they wanted to just go after the truckers where it hurt. And it was the Emergencies Act that allowed them to bring in this absolutely insane and Orwellian financial regime that froze hundreds of bank accounts and protected banks from any liability for doing this. So again, it was this malignant alliance between government and big banks that Canadians are still paying for. Peter Sean Taylor had a great piece in the C2C Journal about this called Frozen, How Canada's Banks Betrayed Their Customers During the Emergencies Act. And I should just apologize in advance. There's a bit of uh, construction going on around my house. So there might be a bit of background noise. I, I apologize to the audience and to Peter for this. But nonetheless, we'll try to get through it. Uh, Peter, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I was mentioning earlier, just to set the stage here, that, you know, it's easy to blame the government, and I think justifiably so for the Emergencies Act. But as you note in your column here, the government wasn't really forcing banks to do things. The big problem was that it was giving them this tremendously wide latitude to do what they wanted. Well, I don't know if they weren't forcing them. I think the banks thought they were forced, forced to, to, um, uh, to freeze the accounts. I think the real issue if you want to blame the banks, and I think there's lots of blame to go around with the Emergencies Act, is that they never pushed back. It's more a sin of omission here. Uh, they dutifully did what the government said they had to do. The government even kind of said it in, in sort of cloaked terms, and the, uh, the banks kind of went along with it. Um, you know, if we're making a chart here, certainly the federal government is, is the most to blame for how the Emergencies Act played out. Um, and I think the banks um, let their customers down and probably let Canada down by not pushing back against what we now see as, a, as a, some real flaws in the application of the Emergency, uh, Emergencies Act. Um, they, I mean, they, they, I don't think they took the reins, but they, um, they never stood up for their customers in the way I think um, certainly their marketing uh, suggests they do, you know, if you watch bank ads, you know, they love their customers and, you know, they want you to feel comfortable leaving their your money with them. And that is their job, right? They, they hold other people's money. Um, and I think that's where they let down uh, both their customers and the country. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, and one thing I would point out too, is that for a lot of people, they had a, a tremendous amount 
of lacking confidence in banks and in traditional banking through this. And I think a lot of that might have been bluster online, but there were talks, uh, and I certainly heard anecdotally from people that said, yeah, they, they want to take their money out of the banks. They just don't trust it, knowing what can happen with this. Yeah, it was a big surprise to a lot of customers. Um, the banks um, haven't really um, admitted that, um, if it was a fact. What was interesting about the, um, the Finance Committee hearings, House of Commons, uh, was both the banks showed up and also the credit unions. And the credit union association told a very different story from the banks when asked about, you know, how did your customers react to this news that um, all of a sudden uh, your accounts could be frozen. And the credit unions said that there was widespread panic, um, that, the, that some of their clients, uh, customers took out hundreds of thousands of dollars. They said a couple of people took out millions of dollars. Um, so there was, there was a lot of concern among credit union customers about this new power. And so it's, it's kind of strange then to hear the banks say, no, it was no big deal. Um, you know, we didn't really notice much. No, no material change is what they said there. Um, you know, you could make an argument that credit union customers are completely different species from bank customers, but I don't, I don't know that I buy that. I think those are their, their competitors in, in a lot of people's minds. And I would be very surprised if a bank customer um, was, was that different from a credit union customer in terms of finding out this new power that the government and their financial institution had to, to freeze their accounts. Yeah, and I mean, certainly for corporate banking and investors and the really big uh, accounts, the big uh, ticket customers, there might be a difference. But I think for, you know, Joe or Jane Smith, who just has their banking account at the neighborhood institution, whether it's a bank or a credit union, I'd agree. They're probably very similar in this. And, and, and there were a lot of people that I, I don't think knew it was as easy as it was ultimately for government and banks to just flip the switch. And I mean, we talk about this in a tech context with cancel culture, but but in a, in a banking context, I mean, you could, again, just overnight in this case, without even a criminal charge, let alone a conviction, have your account frozen? Well, without a court order at all. Um, no, and, and no, no ability to sue, no recourse. Yeah, no, uh, nothing, no due process at all. I, I, I don't think it was many. I think every Canadian was surprised to find out how uh, easy their financial uh, life could be uh, put out of reach. Um, so yeah. Uh, a, a big surprise, big, big surprise. And, and I think the, the disappointment here is, as I said at the start, is that the banks never pushed back. And you mentioned my, my column in, in C2C Journal. Um, I look at a case in 2014 where the, the cell phone companies were put in, in a similar situation. Uh, law enforcement came, they said, we want you to do this. Um, uh, it was a, a production order for, for uh, cell phone data that would of essentially, they were trying to solve this jewelry robbery uh, ring, uh, but basically they wanted uh, cell phone data on thousands and thousands of, of customers uh, from dozens of cell phone towers in Peel region near Toronto. Um, and to their credit, Telus and Rogers said, no, this makes us uncomfortable. This is a violation of our customers' privacy rights. And they went to court and they won. They won. Um, the, it was found that this production order was unconstitutional. And also the judge laid out a whole set of new rules that would henceforth um, uh, prescribe uh, these sorts of production orders by police. So um, that's a case where a private business went to bat for their customers um, and won. And, and the judge noted in that cell phone case that if, the, if Rogers and Tellus hadn't gone to court, probably no one would have because you need 
you know, you know, a, a, a big uh, legal budget to, to take on the government in this regard. Um, so, so my question is, where were the banks? Uh, where was the bank's legal budget? Uh, there was no, uh, there's not a peep. They, they didn't ask for an injunction. They didn't make a, any kind of public um, outcry. They didn't question the legality of it. They said, uh, the RCMP handed them this list and they said, well, we've got a legal obligation to do this. And they went ahead and did it. Um, it wasn't their idea to, to freeze these accounts. It was always the government and the RCMP, um, but they never pushed back. And, and you can see from other examples like the cell phone company, sometimes companies do push back and, and their customers really depend on it because there's no one else to do that. I know it's difficult to to kind of infer or speculate definitively, but do you have any idea why? Because again, companies have customers, and and I think customers would probably reward a company that was publicly and and defiantly going to the mat to protect their their privacy, protect their interests. In this case, is it banks that don't want to be seen as defending the convoy? Is it banks that are afraid of of government regulating them if they don't just go along with what government does? I mean, do you have any idea what would make them? go along with this without publicly anyway putting up a fight well quite right and as i as i said you know their their marketing efforts is always how much they love their customers as you say you would have expected them someone who's in the business of safeguarding other people's money to put up a bit of a fight when Sean, i would switch my accounts over to a company that did that if there was one that stood out and said we're not we're not doing this i would say yep that's where i'm going yeah so so it's a, a great question why did the why did the banks go along with this um, you look at the lobbying data, you know, the banks are enormous. They're, they're very big, one among the biggest lobbyists um, in Ottawa in terms of how many times they make contact with the federal government, how many registered lobbyists they have on their, their payroll. Um, if you ask me for my speculation, I think they've simply been captured by <laughs> the federal government, right? They, um, the, the Canadian banks have a very comfortable business model. You know, they're protected from uh, foreign competition in the retail sector, very lucrative. They make lots of money um, and they depend on federal federal regulators um, have created this uh, sort of business model for them and they could make life very difficult for them um, if there were uh, uh, problems. And and so it, maybe the, the, the banks have just kind of lost sight of, of who they do serve. Uh, maybe they're thinking now they serve Ottawa and their regulatory masters rather than than paying customers. Um, and I would just add that if that is the case, I don't have any you know, proof for that, but it certainly seems to, to fit the narrative. Um, you know, the banks haven't been very well served uh, by this loyalty. I mean, they showed tremendous loyalty to, the, to, the, to Ottawa, right? I mean, they, they didn't push back at all, not a peep. Um, and what do they get in return? Well, the, the 2022 budget has $6 billion in extra taxes on banks and life insurance companies. So. Uh, is a pretty much a slap in the face for being uh, such a loyal servant, um, but but that may be the case. They may simply see that the that uh, they know where their bread is buttered, and and as, as long as they stay on side of the federal government, um, life life will continue to be good for the big banks. Yeah, it could have been billions more if they uh, if they didn't. Do <laughs> it, uh, well, hard to imagine, but who knows.
Yeah, and you quoted Adam Chambers, the conservative MP, as saying you, you just can't function in society without financial services, and, and that's true. And uh, you know, and, and again, these convoy organizers, when they were targeted, it wasn't just their checking account; it was their savings account, their lines of credit, their credit cards. It, you know, basically anything they had. If they had a joint account with a spouse, that was also frozen. I mean, I heard just from some of the convoy organizers whose accounts were frozen about issues they had uh, paying for medication for their children. So, I mean, I mean, the, the consequences of this. Are, are very significant. Yeah, and the, and the numbers, uh, you know, the, the, the Mounties and the, the feds will say it was only 257 accounts. But the, if but you it, look but it could the, have been. It could it, have been. That, that's exactly true, because if you look at the way that emergency order was, was uh, written, it, it talks about anyone directly or indirectly um, supporting the, uh, what is defined as an illegal activity. So, um, you know, that apocryphal tale of, uh, you know, someone who gave $20 um, they might not have had their accounts frozen, but they certainly could have. Anyone who showed up on the RCMP's list, and you know the RCMP was the one who got to decide who goes on that list, um, anyone directly or indirectly uh, connected could have, um, could have had their accounts frozen. So, it's so it was so broadly written, it may have been narrowly applied, um, but the, the, the possibility was there for, you know, a huge amount of damage done to, to thousands of people, not not just hundreds. Now, now, trying to look into the crystal ball here, Peter, do you think that the longer-term implications of this will be now the cork has been popped, so this is just a, a tool available with precedent, or do you think because of this it, it will make people a lot more resistant in the future? Well, I certainly hope, uh, you know, what do I see and what do I hope? Uh, maybe two different things. Uh, I certainly yeah, that's hope- my life. I certainly hope that this um, will reveal to people this kind of dormant power that has been lying there that hasn't been used yet and to you know, mobilize um, certainly all the hearings and uh, inquiries that are uh, being launched in Ottawa and, you know, looking at the, you know, how convincing was the federal government's narrative about the necessity of the Emergencies Act, you know, all the things that are all sort of falling away as, as untruths about uh, uh, you know, arson and the, whether the police requested it or um, weapons and, and, you know, all these yeah. sorts of things. Um, so, so there's certainly a lot of scrutiny. Um, and I think uh, the government is going to be held to a much higher standard the next time it tries to do this. And I would hope that any government in the future thinks twice about it. And, um, and, and especially in the way it writes, like the, that emergency order that, you know, was a authorized under the Emergencies Act. And that was that order was what directed the financial institutions to freeze accounts and stuff. And as we just discussed, it was so broadly written. So I would hope that we would see much more specificity. Um, but this, this new threat of, of being frozen out of your entire digital financial life um, is so powerful. And everyone instantly recognizes how important your credit cards and everything is. So I, I certainly hope that people are sort of now aware of what's lying out there and, and are going to demand much greater scrutiny um, in the future. Yeah. And like anything, I always have to tell people, don't don't view this just in the parameters of the circumstances here. And you may say, well, I don't like the truckers. It's no skin off my back. I don't care. It's the power itself that's matter that matters here. Oh, and we're, we're setting a pre- This is this is the precedent for future use, right? Yeah. If this if if um, Society says, well, that's, you know, if, if a bunch of people we don't like uh, uh, hunker down in a road somewhere, uh, yeah. Yeah, we, the next anti-oil blockade. Oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah. let's, uh, let's well, go after it, the Tides Foundation's bank account or whatever. 
interestingly, during the, you know, most of my research came out of this House of Commons uh, Finance Committee um, hearings. And uh, the head of the First Nations Assembly, uh, Roseanne, I forget her last name, um, uh, she said, she said, you know, we're quite concerned. Uh, uh, the Indigenous community uses crowdfunding to support their protests. Um, very concerned about the ability to, to sanction, you know, how are we defining uh, an illegal activity here? So um, not just one side of the political spectrum, I think um, everybody who might have a bone to pick with, with the status quo now realizes that uh, um, they, this nuclear option um, is there for them as, as well as, as their opponents. It's a great piece over at the C2C Journal, Frozen, How Canada's Banks Betrayed Their Customers During the Emergencies Act. Peter, Sean Taylor, great piece, and thanks so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure, Andrew. Peter, Sean Taylor, that was phenomenal. And, and yeah, I, I think banks were the ones that had a tremendous failing here on their part. And I, I go back to the weekend before Justin Trudeau announced the Emergencies Act, the knowledge that came out that Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, Finance Minister Christian Freeland, had been meeting with the CEOs of Canada's big banks. I use the word plotting. I mean, they were, yeah, they were plotting, clearly. She was apparently asking them what they could do about this situation. And I would say, I mean, why do the banks care? It doesn't matter to the banks. If all this money is flowing through, they're making their money, they're taking their cut. I don't think they cared about what was happening in Ottawa, but government told them they had to care. And government told them, government, this body that can regulate them up the wazoo, is saying that, uh, well, uh, we think you should do this. And, and you'll note when government gave this power, it technically didn't force the banks to do anything. It just said, you can, you can. And if you look at records, you know, it was police that were providing the lists of whose account to freeze to the banks. And a lot of this has been filed in court records will continue to come out. It's that it's like I've always said about big tech. You can take issue with big tech. You can take issue with big finance and all of this. But the worst is when government is getting into bed with these entities. That's when it is absolutely uh, this just insane and insurmountable power that an ordinary citizen cannot go up against and come out from unscathed. So I, I'm so glad Peter Sean Taylor wrote that. I, I want to shift to a, a different topic here. And you may think all of this is, as the C2C Journal says, an example of creeping authoritarianism. And I'd say that there is a, a big, 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 big wealth and trove of evidence supporting that. There are people in this country who know what authoritarianism is, who know what dictatorships are all too well because they came to Canada to escape those. They, they came to Canada to get out of that and to find freedom. And a lot of the people that were supporting the Freedom Convoy, either in Ottawa or from home, were people who came, a lot of them from Eastern Europe, a lot from Latin America, people that had a, a very keen understanding of what it meant to be a citizen in a country where the state has the power. The state is that fundamental building block of society rather than the individual. And I was struck by a lot of these stories. And I know that Rupa Subramanya of the National Post did a great job talking to people. A lot of them she included in her piece that she wrote for Barry Weiss's Substack. But there was something clear there that Canadians, that all the Canadians saying, oh, you know, what are these people complaining about, didn't really understand. And that was something that I felt was, I think, missing from this. Now, this is not related to the convoy. 
But it is related to that broader trend of, of people in this country that fled communism, that fled dictatorships, that fled unfree societies and the experiences that they're having in Canada. And there is a great feature put together by our friends over at secondstreet.org delving into this. The series is called Survivors of Socialism. They interview people that have, as the title of the series would suggest, have survived socialism. They've come to Canada because they think it's going to be better and freer. And this is not saying Canada is a socialist dictatorship. It's just pointing out what people who have lived through that feel when they see certain things happening here. And I, I just personally think the convoy is a great example of that. Joining me now from secondstreet.org is President Colin Craig. Colin, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. So let's start off with the kind of the thrust behind the series here. What is it you're trying to do with this Survivors of Socialism feature? Yeah, there, there's two things, really. One is uh, we're always interested in public policy and uh, sharing good ideas and, uh, you know, shining a light on bad ideas. And so one thing we thought that would be interesting was that just given that uh, socialism and communism have had such a, a horrendous impact on countries around the world, and many Canadians have come from those countries, we thought it'd be interesting to survey some Canadians who came from those countries to say, are there any policies in Canada right now that concern you? Uh, as they remind you of the countries that you fled. And we really didn't know what to expect when we started the survey. But um, one thing we heard back was that uh, uh, a lot of people from those countries, the top concern was uh, efforts to restrict freedom of speech. And I thought, oh, this is pretty interesting. Because like I say, I didn't know where it was going to go. But that was something that a lot of respondents raised was the most common response. Uh, many noted two pieces of legislation that were before the House of Commons in Ottawa uh, prior to the last election, that was Bill C-10 and C-36. So that was the one part was to do that survey. And the other part was to really um, talk to, tell the stories of, of Canadians who have come from these countries and let them share their experiences because so often, uh, you know, academics and university professors, some politicians, some activists, they, they really paint socialism and communism with uh, uh, in a, a nice bright flowery kind of light and uh, obviously they're not telling the full story so we thought well it's important to give a voice to people that have come from those nations to learn more about what it was that they experienced i i'm reticent to ask this because i don't want anyone at all to think that i'm you know shilling for socialism here but is there a difference in your view between the broader economic socialism that you see in a Scandinavia or even in the NDP platform in, in Canada in many cases, and the political socialism that we associate with dictatorships, because they are in different categories, or are they just on one spectrum in, in the same, uh, you know, just at different degrees? Yeah, and, and it, it's an interesting topic, because I think when you talk to different people, you'll get different definitions on socialism and, and communism. And I, when we think about sort of the historic cases, um, when it comes to Scandinavia, I mean, th those countries are not socialists, despite what people will try and, and say about them. And in fact, Denmark's uh, former prime minister uh, was speaking at Harvard, and he made that point quite clearly. He said, look, Denmark is not a socialist country. It's a market economy. And if you think about it, one of the, one of the key distinctions between a socialist country and what we have here in Canada is uh, you know, the people often talk about the means of production, the factories, the farms, who owns them, who operates them. And in a socialist country, it's operated collectively. 
uh, usually by the government. And so obviously in, in a country like Canada, that's, that's generally not the case. We have some government programs and crown corporations operating different things, but for the most part, we're a market economy. Uh, Scandinavian countries are the, the same. In fact, they have, they have uh, lower business taxes um, and in many respects, they're more free than, than uh, Canada. But where they differ is that they impose higher taxes on their citizens. So the sales taxes are quite a bit higher. Personal income taxes are higher and that funds the social welfare state. So it's, uh, you know, if, if people want to say, well, let's copy Scandinavia, I mean, that's something they, they can say, but it's incorrect to say that let's copy them. They're a great example of socialism. And in, in a lot of ways, that makes sense, because if you're going to talk about a, a system, a government that controls a free enterprise, it's not a big leap to control other aspects of what normally and what in a free country would be part of the private sphere. And I mean, you mentioned speech at the beginning. That's a great example. If, if government wants to control the free market to the point where it's not free, uh, free, well, yeah, why wouldn't they do that with the marketplace of ideas? Yeah, and it, well, that's what we've seen in, in true socialist and communist countries. Is it's not just the means of production that they control. It's mm -hmm. they, they own they own people's homes. You don't own your house. You live in a state-owned house or state-owned uh, apartment building, whatever. Um, and then there's that clamping down uh, on uh, human rights. Uh, democracy is usually quashed. It's or if there are elections, they're fake. You know, we talked to someone from. The former USSR he said, "Oh no, no, there were elections, but you could only choose from one candidate. So it, you know, it's it's essentially a, a fake system." Uh, we've talked to people who were thrown in jail for um, uh, speaking out, speaking their mind. We, we talked to a Venezuelan who, uh, you know, talked about how he was put in jail for a few days because he was trying to lead some protests and speak out against what the government was doing. Uh, a lady from Cuba described uh, how her friend there was doing uh, similar uh, uh, activities and he was uh, thrown in prison. So there is that clamping down on freedom of speech and that. And, you know, if you if you go back to the readings of Marx and Engels, I mean, they even talk about the need for violence to to make the transition and then to uphold it. So uh, I think that's probably one of the main reasons why it's so common in these countries to have violence and restrict freedom of speech because you want immense, immense, immense state control. You can't have any dissent. The people that were raising alarms about things they see in Canada compared to things in the country they fled to get to Canada, was the concern that they feel Canada is going down a road from which there is no coming back? Or, or was it really just more frustration that they came to Canada thinking it was uh, one country and now the longer they're here, they're realizing that all these things they uh, thought were, were great and free aren't actually as much? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. I mean, there was there were some sort of uh, some dark responses that felt that we were kind of heading down this road. We weren't going to turn back. Things are going to get really bad. Uh, and then I think on the whole, people recognize that right now in Canada, things are not like they are, say, in a country like Venezuela or Cuba, where, no. um, you know, even, even China, right? It's, it's not really a, a communist country anymore, but it's still authoritarian. It's, it's kept that, that feature. But we're not like that. We have more freedom of speech here than what we have in those nations. But a lot of people say it, said that it, the country has changed over the past 20, 30 years and that they don't have the same freedoms that they once had, but that it's still generally a free country. 
And I, I think that's so frustrating. And I've always been inspired when I've heard from people. Well, oftentimes, I mean, it used to be just based on uh, demographics and ages, people from Eastern Europe that were among the most patriotic, freedom-loving people you'd ever met because they had a very fresh and a very raw memory of what it was like living in a country that, that wasn't like that. And it isn't just Eastern Europe. You mentioned Cuba. Uh, one a gentleman who's fairly well-known in, in right-of-center circles in Canada, Marco Navarro, he fled Nicaragua. And there's a, a great video of him on, on secondstreet.org in this. But it is often the case, I think, that people that understand what unfreedom is like are far more aware and far more conscientious about freedom in a way I, I think a lot of native-born Westerners aren't. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very good point. And that was something that we noticed in the research was that I think there really was, the alarm bells were going off with the survey respondents more so than I think average everyday Canadians that had were born and raised here because they hadn't experienced, you know, where things could go. And so mm -hmm. these people that came from these countries were, were acutely aware of the need for freedom because they didn't want to lose anything that they, they've had since they've they've been here so that was uh that was an interesting point to see that i mean there were a lot of concerns raised with the pandemic and uh some of the restrictions that have been imposed uh because of it too and so i mean that's a different topic which ones were were warranted and which ones went too far but uh, that was interesting to see just how sensitive people in the survey were to those those types of restrictions I, i've got to say overall the stories were really interesting um they were not pleasant stories, but it was it was fascinating to to see what would happen in these different countries because we can't relate here in Canada. We've never been a socialist or communist country. We haven't seen the type of oppression that uh, these people have lived through. I mean, one of the interesting stories was uh, something that uh, Boris Rassen shared with us about how living under the USSR, they ended up destroying cookbooks. And the reason was is that because under the, the Soviet Union, it was just such a disaster that there was such restrictions on food that they didn't want people opening up the, the cookbooks and seeing all these ingredients that their <laughs> ancestors would have used wow. um, because then they'd wonder, well, why don't we have access to those anymore? And it would kind of pull back the curtain as to how uh, incompetent that, that structure of, uh, of government was. I've told this story on my show before. I, I was in, in 2019 in, in the UK for the Media Freedom Conference, or the global conference for media freedom that Canada and the UK were co-hosting. And one of the things that I found so striking is how they were looking at all of these other countries around the world where, I mean, obviously, if you're a journalist, you're taking your life into your own hands, some African dictatorships, even some countries in, in Asia. And I was obviously sympathetic to those uh, plights, but it was interesting how looking at places that are worse than you becomes a very convenient way to not look inward and to not be introspective. And I think with what you're describing here about socialist and communist authoritarian countries, it's very similar. Canada and Canadians would say, well, our country's not like Cuba, our country's not like Nicaragua, our country's not like China. And you can say, well, no, but that doesn't mean you, you shouldn't be looking very critically at things that you're doing that would be welcome in those countries. Exactly. And that was something that was raised as a concern is that we have to defend the freedoms that we have. We don't want to go down this road of mm -hmm. allowing the government the ability to restrict freedom of speech um, and so forth. So the respondents were very sensitive to that. And, you know, I, I think part of going through these stories and talking to people and reading their survey responses, it makes me 
feel grateful for where I do live. We we do not live in those under the same type of oppressive regime that these these many of these respondents came from. But at the same time, there are concerns here, and we should always strive to be better and improve our public policy environment and make sure that we defend freedom of speech so that we can have these good, uh, thoughtful discussions about things rather than just sort of closing in the walls and, and leading everyone to one potential solution. From a policy perspective, what, what would the main takeaways be? Because you're talking about not one or two specific things, but really a, a basket or a, a bundle of policies here. So what would you want the takeaway to be if you were a lawmaker that had uh, your report in front of them? I think if I'm a lawmaker, the, the first thing that I would take note of is the importance of protecting freedom of speech. You, you absolutely need that. That was the number one concern raised by survey respondents. And we, if you don't have freedom of speech and you don't have that free flow of ideas and contrasting the pros and cons of uh, different policies and ideas, then, then that's very uh, concerning. Um, that would be number one. I think uh, another thing to, to, to take away, and one of the reasons why we created this project was because like I said, so often academics and some politicians and activists, they paint uh, socialism and communism in a nice bright light Whereas it's been so troublesome. I mean, there's been millions and millions of people that have died under these regimes. There's 6 million Venezuelans right now that have left the country. And something like the average Venezuelan has lost something like 20 pounds because of the lack of food. The country's just in disarray uh, since uh, Hugo Chavez uh, instituted his, his socialist paradise. Um, so the, the thing that we've done here and we're continuing to work on is creating a resource so that people can see and hear about the end results of this type of ideology uh, so that hopefully we can avoid not just the, the clamping down on human rights and the restrictions on freedom of speech, but the centralization of government control when it comes to the, the means of production, running factories and farms and so forth, because it doesn't work. And, you know, we talked briefly before about China. It's an interesting case because over the past, whatever it is, 70 years, it's gone from this very collective society where lots of people were living in poverty and starving to today. I mean, China's been such a, um, uh, a much more successful economy and people are rising out of poverty because it's going in a different direction when it comes to the economy. There's a lot more private property. Uh, in China, there's businesses that are driving that economy rather than the state. So I think it's a good example of a success story that people need to be mindful of. Yeah, and I know that when you're talking about a report like this, obviously quantitative data is what we're used to seeing in, in things. But I think the qualitative data here is so important because you're talking about people's stories that can't really be distilled into numbers. So I'm glad you've done this in a way that actually has the stories and lets people see uh, what it is that, that these people are saying, because I, I think it's so tremendous and it, it paints a very vivid portrait. So I appreciate that. The brief from secondstreet.org is Survivors of Socialism. Very snappy title there. Colin Craig joined me. Colin, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And if your listeners want to go and show their kids and teach them about these stories and that, all the videos and that, they're on our website, secondstreet.org slash socialism. And if any of them ever come back with a Che Guevara t-shirt, you have my uh, authorization to confiscate it from them. <laughs> Sounds good, Andrew. Thanks a lot. 
That was Colin Craig here on The Andrew Lawton Show. That'll do it. We will have more of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show for you later this week. Hope you have a great rest of the week regardless. And we'll talk to you soon, folks. This is True North. Thank you. God bless. A good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.